as we've said before, and we've made this clear, this is a forum of positive talk. We're not here to rip anybody. We we're going to keep this talk positive so that our families can learn. This is a positive forum of learning and sharing ideas that will hopefully lead to opportunities. With that said, tonight we will get to listen to a great person, a great coach and man that is a true leader of people. Scott Foxhill, the recruiting coordinator and pitching coach at the NCAA Division I champions, the Mississippi State Bulldogs. Before we start with Scott, I want to take a minute to tell you about him and his accomplishments. I call it the Fox Hall File. Scott's coaching career started in 1995, and he coached at Charleston through the 2008 season. In 2008 through 2014, he was at the University of Auburn. From Auburn, he went to North Carolina State, where he was there from 2014 to 2018. And now, from 2019 to present, he is at Mississippi State. Throughout his career, Foxhall has helped stress success in the classroom, boasting four academic All-Americans, nine total honors, one Academic All-American of the Year, and three Conference Student Athletes of the Year Award winners. He has seen 56 of his pitchers selected in the Major League Baseball draft, including 14 in the first 10 rounds of the draft. 13 of those 14 student athletes, Foxhall, helped place in the first 10 rounds of the MLB draft were, were undrafted prospects out of high school. During his time in the dugout, Foxhall has tutored 24 All-American selections, 16 freshman All-Americans, and seen six pitchers earn Conference Pitcher of the Year honors. He coached the ACC Pitcher of the Year in Brian Brown and SC Pitcher of the Year Ethan Small in back-to-back seasons. Scott is married with two children, Caden Kennedy. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Education from the College of Charleston. Please, guys, welcome Scott Foxhall. Thank you, man. Thank you for coming, babe. It's great to be here, my friend. I'm going to enjoy this, I know. Yeah, and this is going to be incredible for our, our people to listen to you and get to feel you. The first question is a question that one of our people that listened to our forum on the on Sunday and Mondays, and this is going to be a tough one. How does the transfer portal and lack of penalties from the NCAA affect your recruiting of high school players? It's kind of to be seen since it just started with us last year or this past summer. But I think that my dad always told me that having options was really good and, and it does create more options for, uh, for student athletes. But then the flip side of that is sometimes when you have too many options, it gets confusing and it, it promotes a culture of giving up sometimes as well when you can just leave with no penalties. But I think for the most part, it's going to be good because it does make sure that student athletes get the opportunities that, that they're seeking. And the way college recruiting is these days we make so many early decisions and it, it's, believe me, 
I have many friends in college baseball and, and I've been doing this a long time. And we, most of us agree that we would rather not recruit so early, but it just turns into the competitiveness gets all of us. And we just say, Hey, I'll stop if you stop. And then person next to us says, well, I'll stop if you stop. And nobody ever stops recruiting so early. So when the recruiting is um, done at such a young age, there are mistakes that are going to be made. And I think there are mistakes that are made on both ends on the, on the coaches that are offering scholarships and the parents and families, the players that are accepting them. The portal hopefully will, will help us to, if there is a mistake made, a player isn't trapped and a player isn't getting penalized for, for leaving and, and they and, and it, it works out to, to be good for all parties. But again, it, it remains to be seen because we're only, we're not even a year into it yet, Butch. That's great information. I appreciate your honesty about everything, Scott. This, you'll see in this forum, this is, there are a bunch of coaches on this, but there are so many young kids that are looking for answers that, you know, just can't, the answers aren't out there always. So we're trying to provide those answers and what help you can give them is greatly appreciated. I, and I, I'll just say, I don't think anything's changing on our end as we've always, the reason I'm at Mississippi state is because I love the guys that I'm working with. I, I have a lot of faith in, in my head coach. Coach Lamonis has been doing it for a long time and, and we've known each other for a long time and, and when I decided to come and work with him, one of the reasons is because he's such a good person and, and he's hired great people to be on his staff. But our feeling about how we run our program and how we treat our players on a daily basis and the honesty and the trust that we're creating within our program, it, it's not going to change because of the portal. Again, hopefully it'll just make sure that everybody ends up being in the the situation that they want to be in, in terms of the opportunity for the student athlete, each one. Great answer. I appreciate that. Second question for you, coach, what advice do you have for high school kids that will go into D1 programs as freshmen competing against men from this transfer portal? Again, I don't think it's going to change too much from the way it's been in the past. I mean, anytime, the freshman, a freshman came into your program, they were going to be a couple or three years behind the upperclassmen. It's, I don't think it's going to be that much different from that perspective, but it is, uh, it's definitely a big transition when you go from a high school player to a, to a college player. It's the, the strength and conditioning that the, the upperclassmen have, had the benefit of for the first couple of years, most of the time, that's what turns them into men, like you said. And also the just the playing experience that they've had and the experiences that they've gone through in those first couple of years put them ahead of entering freshmen. But it's always been that way. It, it, I think you just have to look at maybe the as this evolves and – we see what the trends are. I think parents will maybe start to be able to tell which programs are, are going to the transfer portal more often 
and maybe that'll start to affect decisions um, in the next couple or three years. But again, it, it's going to take a, a while to, to set those trends. Great answer again. A, a tough question, and it, it, it mainly is regarding some of the more top schools in the, in the recruiting of players. Eighth, ninth, and tenth graders, why do you think there's such a push to these guys committing early without due diligence and not just their ability, but their maturity, makeup, academics, things that some of these kids are really young and they're committing? And what would be your answer to that? How can we, how can the system get better? I think the the answer to it is probably the answer to uh, a lot of the reasons young kids do what they do and throughout time and not just baseball, but everything. The, the reason young people do a lot of the things that they do is because of peer pressure. And I believe that the social media has taken that peer pressure and put it on steroids. And it is that the, the kids see a kid in California can now see what kids in Florida are doing and in Texas and across the country and all over. So you see, they see one guy commit and it just stirs the pot and creates maybe some, some artificial pressure, I guess is how I would say it, that maybe, maybe I should be committing because um, the guy in Florida committed or the guy in New York committed or the guy that I played in this tournament with committed. And I, I think it's just that's how it's rolling right now with with all these young guys committing is that they see their friends do it. And it's just a peer pressure thing. And that's probably what's happening. I, how do we stop it? I don't know. But I've heard a lot of ideas out there that seem like they're they're good but the the biggest one i've heard is if if you commit someone if someone commits no matter what age they are they have to sign a scholarship paper and i think there's a lot of people that feel like if we started doing that then it might slow the process down a little bit because it would be a little more official and it would be a little more binding or it would be binding. And now it's not so much binding when they commit at a young age. In your opinion, would you think that would slow that down if they did not just be a, a verbal commit and, and had to assign a, a letter of intent? I think that um, it would probably have to be in combination with a binding signature but also you'd probably have to put some limits on how many people per class a school could sign or they would just sign them and now with the transfer portal they would it, it wouldn't be as big a penalty even if they oversigned with the younger kids so i think it would have to be a multi have have some multi uh be multifaceted and you'd have to have a couple of different gates that you could lock up to make sure that we control it. But I, I don't know if, if that's the answer, but that's probably the best solution that I've heard for trying to slow it down.
That's great. Thank you for answering that honestly. Question for you is how is the most effective way for high with COVID and the changes that have gone on since March of 2019? How is the most effective way for high school players and families to reach colleges and be noticed if they feel like their exposure is lacking? I feel the college camp is the best way to go for, for a lot of reasons. I feel like one, you get to go to the school and the campus that you're interested in. So you actually get to see the facilities. You get to meet the coaching staff. There gets to be some interaction and, and uh, see if there's a fit with the relationship between the player and the coaching staff. Two, you, you're actually performing in front of them and you're performing on their field where they see their players practice daily and they see and their games are played. And I think it's a truer evaluation for the college coach because it's a direct comparison. And I think that's that evaluation is way more valuable than seeing them at a different venue or seeing them on film. So for all of those reasons, I think that if you can figure out the three or four or five schools that you're really interested in and try to attend their camps. I really believe that's the best way to go about it and make the best and most informed decision for the player, but also the coaching staff. It, it gives them the best chance to make the, the best evaluation and the best des- decision on whether or not that player is a good candidate for a, for a scholarship at their school. The, uh, the other way second place for me is uh is still the the word of mouth and the talking to people that I trust that's always been my number one because I get to see a I get to see a guy play on one day maybe or, or maybe I get to see him play a couple or three different times but if I really trust the coach that he's playing for or the coach that's in his conference that sees him all the time or has seen him develop through the years. For me, that's, if I trust that person, that's what I lean on because I I can make a mistake watching somebody one time and it doesn't really give you the full perspective on that player when you just get to see him have three or four at bats or, or have, a couple of outings on the mound. But if you can talk to people that you trust that see them all the time, then for me, that's what usually puts me over the top on, on player evaluations. So when you, can you talk about just that, but the player evaluation as a college coach, as the NCAA champion, Mississippi state, when you, when you are trying to figure out the type of player you're bringing to your program, what are the things that are important so that these kids understand what's important so they can get to that next level? I will, I'm going to give you three C's, three C words on that. And the first one, and, and I'm going to, I'm going to give you the, the, the number one disclaimer I'll give you before I give you my three C words is physically they've got to, they got to be a good fit. We baseball and talent wise, we've been, my, our staff's been doing it for a long time. We can 
have the parameters from a baseball standpoint that, that we're looking for. But there's so many players out there that will fall into those parameters physically that um, we have to have, we have to be more specific. And, and it, it, a lot of times, most of the times it comes down to some intangibles. And, and those are the three C words that I'm going to give you. The first one's coachable. When they check all the boxes for us from a baseball skill standpoint, the next thing we'll go to is this player coachable because like you just told, we just talked about a little bit with boys coming into play against men. When we get freshmen, we get young players, they're not going to be as strong, as seasoned, as polished. A lot of times they're not um, going to be ready to play day one on campus, but if they're coachable, then they have a really good chance. We have a really good chance to accelerate that process and turn them into men quicker and the baseball men quicker if they're coachable. And what I mean by coachable is just they, they're, they have aptitude. They have work ethic. They have a really good filtering system in place where they can hear coaching points and take the ones that they think will benefit them and um, apply them and when they're coachable we're able to give them feedback give them constructive criticism and then when practice is over they take that and they go work on it on their own and they get better because they're here after hours and they're here early and they're here doing things on their own and they've taken those coaching points and and they're able to apply them. So the first C word is coachable. That's the number one intangible that we're looking for. The second C word for us is competitiveness. We want guys that are competitors and guys that have risen to the occasion, whether we've seen it or we've heard about it from the people that we trust. They're the guys that a lot of times are multi-sport players a lot of times they have, we've just seen them when the situation's been tough, they've gotten tougher. And one of the, one of the things coach Lamonis always says to our recruits, and it's uh, joking a lot of times, cause he's, he's got a really good sense of humor, but there's always a little bit of truth in every joke. And one of the things he always says is to, uh, to our recruits are, Hey, do you get nervous if you play in front of 15,000 people? Because if you're nervous playing in front of 15,000 people, then Mississippi State's not the right place for you to come to school. And uh, like I said, he's joking with them a little bit, but there's there's a lot of truth in, in a joke sometimes. And we need those guys that are able to to be able to be great when they're when the their greatness when it, be able to have competitive greatness and be able to be their best when their best is required. And that's, that's what you have to do when you play on a big stage like our guys play in front of. So the second C words, competitiveness. And the third one for me is, and stay with me on this one, but it's being collegial. And what being collegial means is that we're looking for players who happily work together and that's a big one for us. We, we spend so many hours at the field and 
we laugh about this all the time as coaches, not just here, but my friends across college baseball, we laugh about this, that we spend more time with our players than we do with our own families. And you, you laugh about it to keep from crying because it's kind of part of that is makes us sick that we're away from our family so much, but we do it because we love it. We love our jobs and we spend more time with our players than we do with our own family. So when we're picking the players that we're going to be around more than our own families, we want to pick the guys that we really want to be around. And those are the guys that are collegial and they work happily together and we work happily with them. And there's a, a real sense of, you care about the guy that's next to you in the locker room and you care about the guy that's next to you on the bench. And there's some unselfishness, uh, a lot of unselfishness that, that um, goes with that. And those are the type of players that we're looking for and that we think are successful in our program. Again, my disclaimer is you can't have all those things and, and not have a good arm and not be able to hit. Like you have to have the baseball skills but once we've decided that you have the baseball skills, those three C words come into play, and, and those, that's what we're looking for at Mississippi State. I'm going to use a word from my friend Walter Beatty. That was gold. The three C's and the third one being double gold. I, how, do you, how do you find out – is it through the camps? Is it through talking with coaches? Is it just getting to know the player? How do you find out if that player has those three C's? Yeah, it's talking to everybody. It's in Coach Lamonis's thing. When we're in the recruiting room, we're, every Monday we have recruiting meetings. And, and his broken record quote that he says is, make one more phone call. And so it's you find out as much as you can about a guy. You talk to guidance counselors. You talk to teachers. You talk to opposing coaches. You talk to umpires. You talk to former players. You talk to anybody that you can because you never know who's gonna who's gonna tell you the 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 thing that's gonna put that player over the top. And once you think you found out everything about that player, you make one more phone call. And that's kind of the broken record and how we try to recruit here for sure. Wow. That's all. I've never heard that before. And that I guess is the key to why you guys are so successful. Let me ask you one more question uh, about recruiting before we go into pitching and you know, where your hot spot is besides the recruiting, because you've obviously done a fantastic job. How large of a role, because as youth coaches, we're trying to help our kids find opportunities. And obviously the showcase companies are huge in the eyes of all of our, all of our players because they think it gets them exposure. How large of a role do showcase companies play in colleges' ability to find talent? How do you use their services to identify potential student-athletes? They definitely have a role. And but I would say it's at the very beginning of the process for us. And it, and again, it, it comes down to a lot of what we talked about. It's people that we trust and we've built up relationships with a lot of those places that are, I guess, that are showcases 
or showcase run showcases or help with showcases and some we trust more than others but it's the starting it's the starting point of the process and then once we've got a name or have gotten a little bit of information from the showcase or from the company or the person then we start our process with with trying to make all the phone calls and and trying to find out as much as possible but i would say that that there's a lot of times there's benefit from from doing the showcases but it's at the very beginning of the process for us awesome okay let's switch to some player talk in developing players if what are tool, what are the tool or tools that are important for you in determining a player's value for your program the so from a pitching standpoint I know I talked a lot about intangibles, but I let, let me be a little more specific with this question with the baseball stuff. And I try to keep it as simple as possible in the recruiting process because I think when we're evaluating the players, because I think sometimes we overthink it. But I played my first college coach was Coach Hal Baird at Auburn, and he's a uh, he's a, a legend of a coach, and he he's coached some great. He coached Bo Jackson, he coached Frank Thomas, he's uh, He's just a really good baseball guy, and he was a pitching guy. So he was my pitching coach in college, and I still talk. I try to talk to him every couple of weeks still today to this day. But he he told me this, and when I first started coaching, and it has been true for me when evaluating pitchers and coaching pitchers. It's been true from day one, and when we were using the old plug it into the briefcase radar guns and it's still true today when we're using all the track man and rap soto and all the crazy technology that we have and it's very simple when i'm recruiting pitchers i look for when i go to a game i look for how many three ball counts did that pitcher was that pitcher in in this outing and how many swings and misses did that pitcher get with pitches in the strike zone? And that has been one of my most valuable evaluation tools, just asking those two questions when I go watch pitchers, because if they're not in very many three ball counts, it means that they are filling up the strike zone. It means that they're competitive in the strike zone. And we all know that's very valuable as a pitcher. And then the second one is how many swings and misses in the strike zone did that pitcher get? And that's just the indication of how good his stuff is. And when you go watch pitchers and some guys strike out a lot of hitters, but were they playing against competition that was way below them? And those hitters were just chasing balls that were three feet outside or two feet over their head or just nowhere near the strike zone. And they just got all those strikeouts because they were facing bad hitters. Well, if they're getting strikeouts and swings and misses on balls in the strike zone, it's a little better indication that that pitcher's got deception or he's got a real out pitch or he's got something that's getting swings and misses in the strike zone. And that's a better predictor for me that they're going to do well at, at my level. And then once we get, once they get here, I'm still coaching them off of those two questions. 
hey, how many times are you getting the three ball counts? How many swings and misses are you getting in the strike zone? And what can we do to get you less three ball counts and more swings and misses in the strike zone? So those two questions from a baseball standpoint have been my go-to down through the years. Again, as technologies evolve, as, as things have changed in our game, as philosophies have changed, those two questions have, have really helped me in my coaching career. And that's how I determine whether pitchers are valuable in our program or not, if, if they have the right answers to those two questions. From a hitting standpoint, I don't work with the hitters on a day-to-day basis here, but I help recruit them and, and I watch them. And we've had lots of success here offensively. And I know Coach Gotro, when I talk to him about it, how a, how a hitter is valuable to us in our program is, again, two simple things. The first one is, do they have the ability to do damage with zero or one strike? Can I, do we have a threat? Do we have a hitter that understands with zero or one strikes? Hey, I can do damage. If I, if I get my pitch, if I guess, if I have the right approach with no strikes or one strike, can I do some damage? And then the second one is his ability to battle with two strikes. And I think that in our postseason run last year, and really, if you pay attention to Mississippi State baseball over the last few years that our staff's been here, it's very apparent that our guys really battle with two strikes and we'll put the ball in play and we're, we don't give away at bats and we make it tough on the pitcher and, and we'll grind the pitcher out. And it's just been a, a really a trademark of, of our offense. And that's a tribute to coach Gotro. He's, he does a great job with our hitters, but those two simple things from a hitting standpoint is how we can determine if, if a hitter has value in our program. Those couple of tools and, and those couple of questions that we ask about pitchers and those couple of questions that we ask about hitters. Great stuff. Scott, let me ask you a question. Obviously, at your level, you're trying to win games. So when you go into games, you're trying to win games. In high school, uh, younger baseball guys are trying to develop pitchers and pitch counts become part of the equation. W- what do you think is where guys that are younger that aren't in college yet, what, where should they be in the range of in your mind? I, I had the um, great fortune of um, when I was coaching at Auburn of working with um, Dr. Andrews had his clinic. He had one of his offices was right inside our stadium at Auburn and his office, his main office was in Birmingham, which is, was not far away. So I, I had a lot of interaction with Dr. Andrews, who's was a pioneer in arm health and in arm care and, and then in fixing arms. Uh, and I think he fixed so many arms and that's how it, it began with him. He was fixing and repairing so many injured arms that he, he, started backtracking and go and why are all these arms injured and then he then he became the pioneer in, in arm health and, and trying to set some standards to to keep arms healthier and and I really like his equation that I try to relay to parents that asked me this question and he would always he said that he felt like the best thing to do would be 
to multiply a player's age by 100. And so if you have a 15 year old, you take 15 years old and multiply it by 100 to get 1500. And he thought that's how many game pitches you should throw in that year would be 1500. And he would say, that's not bullpen pitches. That's not preparation for the season. That's when you have on a different uniform than the other team and you're competing and it's for real, so to speak. If you keep up with, with that, that, that's a good marker for, and it's not the end all be all. It's just when you're a 15 year old and you hit 1500 pitches in that calendar year, 1500 game pitches in that calendar year, then you just need to start paying attention. Is the arm still good? Is, are you wearing down? Are you having some pain? And then just make some common sense decisions. But that is, he thought that was a good way to start. And then that kind of has a built-in system of checks and balances. So you figure when you turn 16, you're a year older and a little more mature. So you get to 1,600. When they're in college with me, I have them from 18 to 21. And there's the built-in, they get a few more pitches, um, assuming that they're maturing and they're working harder in the weight room and they're getting stronger. You, you get to, to build that pitch count up. A little bit, but I, he he always thought that was a, a good model, and I've gone by that one, Butch. When I, when people have asked me advice, I, I think that's a good place to start. Again, you have to use common sense. If there's pain, then it might be sooner than that. If a guy's bigger and stronger for his age, then maybe you have a few more. But I, I thought that was a, I think that's a pretty good starting point to to try to look at the pitch count equation. Okay, so then let me ask you this. For routines, for the guys that you look after and you're in charge of, like your routine at Mississippi State, I'm sure you have your group of relievers. You got your group of starters. Say if you have your Friday starter, what will his routine be from Saturday to the next Friday? My my Friday starter will pitch on Friday night, and then Saturday he will do a, a heavy leg day in the weight room, he will usually, I will give him the option of, I want him to throw in one of the first two days after their outing. So some of my guys will throw the day after and it'll be a a five to 10 minute, nice and easy. Take your arm through the arc and just get it moving a little bit. Some guys want to take that next day off from throwing if they do that, then they have to throw the second day. So one of the next two days is, is a light throw day, but the, the day after is a heavy leg day. The second day after, so Sunday, would be an upper body day. Decently strenuous upper body lift on Sunday. Monday, we take off from, from the weight room, but it would probably be a, a long toss day for them where they throw probably out to 120 with some air under it, maybe 150. Then Tuesday would be their another uh, a long another throw day with a little bit more distance and some pull downs, so a little more um, intensity in their throwing program, and that would uh, also be their bullpen day. So after their throwing routine, after their long toss routine and some pull downs. They would do a bullpen on Tuesday, 
Usually they would do a full body lift Tuesday after their throwing. So they would do a upper and lower half lift on a Tuesday after they throw. Wednesday would be the day where my terminology for Wednesday for the starters is to throw out the lift. So they would go Wednesday, they would throw with a lot of air under it and just stretch it out and and make sure that they're loose again after that um, full body lift on Tuesday. And then Thursday would be a really light touch and feel day. And then they'd pitch again on Friday. That's kind of my starter schedule for, for the week during the season. Okay. So that's, that's a great, great information for our families. What about a reliever, a guy that say in high school, Guys might throw a 40 or 50 pitch in a relief situation. Then they might not throw again until they get into another game. What would you be your recommendation to kids that are relievers in high school that are still trying to develop themselves to maybe become starters at some point? I, I think that the tricky thing in high school a lot of times is they're playing a position. So it, it's you just you have to be careful for my relievers you got to be careful with those guys that they don't overuse or get on the mound too much in between outings. If, if they're playing shortstop or, or playing a position, I, I think that if they are, then they're making a lot of athletic throws as a position player and that they're probably going to be good to, uh, to pitch again in a couple or three days just because of their playing the position and, and making those throws for my guys, for my relievers, my rule is you have to be on the mound one out every three days. If, if you can't go more than three days in a row without being on the mound, even if you're not getting used, I make sure that if they throw Friday, then they're, they're available. Depending on how many pitches they've thrown, they could be available Saturday or Sunday. But if they haven't pitched in a game again, by the time it rolls back around to Monday, then they're on the mound again and making sure that they keep the feel for all their pitches. So I like that's the general rule I use for my relievers that you're, you're on the mound once out every three days. Again, that can be the rule in high school too, but you just have to balance that with, are they playing all the time? Thank you. That's great information. Thank you. Let me ask you a question. You talked about the physical things. What are some of the things that you believe in that you do to help a player mentally in his mental game? Mentally, it all starts with this for me. And I, I try to have this. This is our biggest sign in our pitching lab. And I try to say this as often as I can with my guys. And really, it, it applies. It applies to pitchers, but it applies to hitters just as much. And it's almost one of those questions that you can ask your players right when you when you get them for the first time and, and just say, what's the most important thing in baseball? And I, I know you can have – you can go a million different ways with that question and with the answer to that question, but the one I'm looking for and the one that I'm trying to drive home to them when I ask what's the most important thing in baseball, what's the most important thing in the game of baseball – my answer and the one that I hope they're conditioned to say after they've been with me for a while, when they hear that question, what's the most important thing in the game of baseball? And it is the next pitch. 
and it's always the next pitch. And it doesn't matter whether you're a hitter or pitcher. And if you're able to have that mentality that the most important thing is the next pitch, then it helps you flush the bad stuff if, if something bad had just happened. It helps you not become overconfident if something good has just happened. It just helps you stay even keel, which I believe the best baseball players are even keeled. And they, you, you, I believe that the best teams are even keeled. Coach Baird used to tell us, um, this always stuck with me when, I, when he coached me, he said, a good baseball team, if a fan walks in, in the fourth inning of a game and doesn't see the scoreboard and just walks in and looks at the field, uh, a good baseball team, a fan shouldn't be able to tell if they were up by 10 or down by 10 because they play the same way all the time. And if you understand that the most important thing is the next pitch, then I think that's how you play. And, and uh, it just, it frees you up and hopefully keeps you focused, which you need both of those things to be successful in this game. You got to be able to play free and you got to be able to play focused. And if you understand that the most important thing is the next pitch, then for me, that's the starting point of having a great mentality in this game. Wow. Scotty, great stuff. It's really understandable. And, and just listening to you and seeing why you're having the success you've had and where you've been where you've been. But I want to ask you a question now that has to do with the player and the family. If you could talk to every kid in America and talk to his parents, what would be some of the things that you would tell them that are the most important things for them to be doing to help their son get to the next level? Yeah, that's, that's a big one. I think as adults and adults who have experienced the world, um, that's the, the gift the best gift that we can give to, to our kids and our students and our players, I think is the gift of perspective because we have, we should have way better perspective than our younger players and our children. So as adults, I feel like it's our charge to, to give them perspective, which is sometimes your perspective is you, you got to probably tell them how big the world is when they, when they think they're the best player in the conference or the best player in the city or the best player in the state. Sometimes as parents, you might have to give them perspective of, Hey, yeah, you might be the best player in the city, but our city has 60,000 people. Our state has 10 million people and the country has, 350 million people like and sometimes it's our job to to maybe motivate them with that perspective some sometimes it's to give them the perspective of how small the baseball world is and, and hey if if you performed here at this level and, and did well there's no reason that you can't perform at the next level and and do well as long as you stay with the fundamentals and the things that got you your success at this level. So sometimes it's the perspective of teaching them how big the world is. And then sometimes it's teaching them the perspective of, Hey, even at this small level, it, 
if you're doing the right things, it applies at the next big level. Perspective is a big thing, I would say, is a, is a gift that we should be able to give our kids and, and the people that we're trying to coach. The other big thing for me is time management. And, and that's a life skill that's valuable, not just in the game of baseball, but just to be successful in life, you have to learn how to manage your time. And, and I feel like as adults, we've probably made really good decisions with time management. And a lot of us, myself included, made really bad decisions. And, and if we can relay those lessons to our kids, then hopefully they'll learn from our mistakes and, and, and learn from our successes in, in the time management area. I'd also say that last thing is, I think it's our job as parents and, and coaches to, to teach these kids how to be positive. The, the game can be so negative, but if you can teach these kids how to be positive and spin things a positive way for them, even when things are tough, this is um, the game of failure. It'll, it'll beat you down if you don't have the ability to stay positive. The best players that I've been around are are almost exclusively pop positive. They are positive people. It doesn't mean they don't have bad days. It just means that they're, for the most part, they're positive and they can see the positive in almost every situation. And that enables them to, to keep having fun. And that's, I, I think as parents and players, we got to make sure our, our kids are having fun. It's hard to be successful if you're not having fun. It's a game. I know the old adage is the umpire doesn't say work baseball. He says, play baseball, play ball, not work ball. So um, I think as parents and coaches, we, we got to have that perspective and make sure our, our kids have that perspective. Another gold answer from you. And so appreciated that you're spending this time with us, Scott. I know you said it at the first, your time with your family is limited. I lived that life myself. So I know. So I truly appreciate you taking this time to talk to all these people and, and give me your thoughts. Let me ask you this question. It, this was a question that was sent to me. What are your thoughts on Juco pitchers and recommendations for guys who want to make the move from Juco to D1 programs? We have, we've had a lot of success with junior college players. We at Mississippi state, like we, we won, uh, won the first game of the championship series this past year with two of our junior college pitchers, we went, I think we split the game. One went four innings, one went five innings and, and, and won the, the, our first game in the championship series this year. We really value them. It is a, it's a great way to gain experience and to bridge the gap. Again, like we almost, we let off this conversation with, what's how do how do these freshmen that come into the game how are how are these freshman boys going to compete against men um, that are already in in established in college programs well junior college is a way to just bridge that gap and get you get you some valuable experience and depending on where you are in your stage of development um, I think junior college can be a great way to prepare you for a four-year school. So we, uh, we think it's, it's very valuable. I know where you are in California, there's 
some of the best junior college programs in the in the country are there. And I talk to a lot of those coaches every year to find out who the best junior college pitchers are out there. And the same same goes with we we have some in our state. We Florida has great junior colleges. Texas, just all over the country, we try to make phone calls to those hotbeds of junior colleges, those hotbed junior college areas to try to find um, guys that can help us on our staff every year. Can you talk, what we talk about, we stress it a lot, the academic part of this equation where the NCA, I, I think all you guys say student athlete. We do. Can, can you talk about the, expectation level you have for guys that come in there to play yes we maybe the biggest cultural change that coach Lamonis made here when we came in to Mississippi State was on the academic end he is a he brought a a culture of a culture um, of success in the classroom and we we just got it the other day. I think we set our I think we had a I think we had a three six GPA during COVID that semester that uh we went home for COVID. So that's the highest one. But I think other than that semester, last semester was a three two six for us and we've had over a three oh team GPA for every semester that our coaching staff's been at Mississippi State. And the reason is we feel like it goes hand in hand, academic success and baseball success. Being successful academically in college is going to class. It's establishing good habits for studying. It's asking questions and problem solving. And if you look at it, that's what being a great baseball player is. It's establishing good habits. It's showing up every day. It's problem solving and figuring out how to get the right answers in the classroom. Obviously, it's textbooks and solving math problems on, in the baseball field. Getting the right answers is how do I find my swing and how do I find my routine that's going to that's gonna get me the results that I want. So we really feel like it goes hand in hand. If you're successful in the classroom, you got a really good chance to be successful on the baseball field. So that's the way we feel about it. It's awesome. We're at about 6.57 out here on the, on the West Coast. I want to ask you one more question. And if somebody has a question they'd like to ask Scott, I'd like him to get it in. I want, to, want somebody – I'm really hesitant about letting people on to ask questions, if I, especially if I don't know you because I don't want – if you want to ask a question, I want it to be positive. I don't want it to be attacking. Everything here, I want it to be positive in ways that our players and coaches can learn. My last question to you, Scott, would be this. What we, we all love our kids, and we want the best of them, and sometimes it makes us a competitive asshole. What – what can we do as parents to step away so our kids don't feel our pressure? I'm going to tell, tell you this, but because you were a great scout. That's when I first met you is, 
is uh, when you were scouting, I, I'll, I'm going to brag on you for a minute, but I, I sat beside you, I believe, for the first time at the East Coast Showcase in Wilmington, North Carolina, and you sat at the top of the bleachers, and you had the yellow legal pad, and you were watching the game and writing at the same time. I don't even think you were looking down. You were just writing the whole time, and when the event was over, you had a legal pad that looked like maybe several legal pads. I remember it was, they were stacked up with just nothing but notes about all the details and all the, the players that you've seen. And it, it just impressed me all year. Now I wanted to ask you a million questions and I did, and you answered all of them. I'm going to go back to your scouting days when you were doing that. And when you saw a player that you liked, I bet one of the first things that you did as a scout was, all right, I really like this player. Who are his parents? And you would scan the stands and try to see if you could figure out who the dad was, who the mom was. And you did it for a lot of reasons, but I think the, 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 the first reason is physically you want to see, okay, what's, what's this young guy going to grow up and look like? Is, is he, what's the dad's frame? What's the dad's size? And, and that's probably the first thing, but I bet not far behind that, you're looking for character and you're looking for how do the parents act? Because we all know that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And you want to make sure that you're getting, if you're drafting that player, you want to make sure you're getting a good character you want to make sure that you're getting good work ethic. You want to make sure that you're getting the right person because all of those notes in that yellow legal pad, I'm sure were right about the baseball and you knew you were getting the right player if you liked them and they, they had the right notes in that legal pad, but you needed to make sure you're getting the right person. You go to the parents for that. And that's what I do in recruiting too. I go to the parents and see what kind of person, what kind of people are the parents. I don't know if that's the best way to answer your question, but I would tell you as a parent that you are modeling to us what your son is going to be like, probably, because of how you're acting. Act right <laughs> as, as, a, as a parent is what I'm saying. That and, is... uh, I, and I, I think that if, if you use that and govern use that to govern your actions that I think you'll see when you need to step back and when you need to hold your tongue and when how you need to motivate your son and how you can be the best parent for your son it's an unbelievable answer and nothing short of what I expected you to answer how you to answer it Scott I can't tell you how much I appreciate and respect you and how much I appreciate you coming on and talking with all the people here. This is, as Walter, my friend, would say, it was gold. You're gold tonight. And I wish you the best of luck with your team, with your family. And thank you for coming on. No, it was great to be here, Butch. And and, uh, thank you for what you're doing. And as I'm told everybody, one of my go-tos is to, talk to people that I trust. Well, I trust you. And I know lots of people out there do. So thank you for doing this. And it was great to be here with you. Thank you.